Thanks, Brenda. When she introduced herself and said that she's been attending for about two years, I, I kind of remember that. It was literally just maybe a few weeks before kind of COVID struck and shut uh, us down and meeting in person. And so for Brenda and maybe many like Brenda, uh, most of her engagement over the last two years has been online, but you've faithfully participated in Equip and you've met people uh, even in, in that context. So thanks for reading scripture in person this morning for us. And what she read is in fact a great passage. I mean, they're all great passages, right? I mean, it is the Bible after all, but this one particularly stands out uh, to me. Um, Pastor Adam uh, was, was, was a little bit jealous, actually. He had a lot of ground to cover last week, and when I had this passage, he's like, oh man, you've got such a great passage. Not that his wasn't great, but this is a good passage. Now, I, I'm almost somewhat embarrassed to admit this, but when I was young, um, I paid far too much attention to how I looked, and particularly the clothes I wore. Um, I always wanted to, to dress nice, look good, all of those, those kind of things. And, um, and like I said, I probably paid way too much attention for it. But there's something about what we wear. And there is actually a, a reference to um, you are what you wear. And, and it's kind of this, this sense of clothes having an influence on kind of our psychological processes. That what your clothes, what you wear actually says a lot about you. And sometimes the way you feel will influence what you wear, etc. Well, today I want to kind of flip this around a little bit, not so much talk about you are what you wear, but rather that you wear what you are. You wear what you are. And in the passage that Brenda read for us, the Apostle Paul talks about clothing, in fact. He uses this imagery of clothing that is really fitting and appropriate for these believers at uh, Colossae. And as I said last week, Pastor Adam, he covered a lot of ground, and he asked the question, what does the Christian life look like? You see, as followers of Jesus, our desire is Jesus. Simply put, the, the focus of this, the, this heavenly focus even that we sung about this morning. And as followers of Jesus, it's our desire to know him, and our minds are focused on him. And he outlined in that passage, I recommend if you haven't heard it, to go back and listen to it, but he outlined there what a life of seeking and setting our eyes on Jesus should then look like. And so the message today really picks up where he left off, because Adam talked about what we need, in essence, to put off, and I'm going to talk about what we need to now put on in uh, replacement of the things that we put off. And again, the imagery that Paul uses here is really that of putting on clothes. So think about that image of putting on, you know, a t-shirt, putting on a jacket, and, and when we think back to last week's message and that passage there, there are some old, kind of stinky, grubby, dirty clothes that we need to take off. But then there are some beautiful things that we need to put on. And in verse 12, there's just this phrase, clothe yourselves, clothe yourselves. And it's really the key to the whole passage, the image of clothing, putting on clothing that is right and appropriate for followers of Jesus. 
And Paul's saying that we should, in essence, now just put on Jesus. That we, in essence, clothe ourselves or cover ourselves with Christ. In other words, we're so possessed by the indwelling mind of Christ that our thoughts, our feelings, our expressions and actions will actually reproduce the life that Jesus lived and now lives in us. And if you have your Bibles open, and again, I would encourage you uh, to, to have a Bible that you can, you can flip to easily if we move around sometimes. But just to look at verses 5 through 11, there that Pastor Adam covered, it just lists five sinful indulgences. I won't read them again, these vices that can trip us up. And then he has a list of six more. And, and if you think about them in the context of this, they're all sin that in some ways breaks relationships. They're the very things that destroy relationships, right? So when he says, um, uh, where is it now? Do not lie. Oh, wait. But now you must also rid yourselves. And so that's this putting off. Rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. And he goes on. And so these are the kind of things that we might do that are not appropriate for the people of God that actually break relationships. Now, verses 12 and 17 that we come to this morning, really Paul starts talking about then, if those things destroy and break relationships, what in fact will build relationship? Or what builds community? Especially in the context of the church. And next week, we'll actually talk more about this putting off and putting on uh, in the context of the family. And uh, you might want to read ahead and go, oh boy, uh, there's some tricky passages, verses there. But today, though, we want to talk about this in the context of the church family. Um, You know, there's many many metaphors that we can use to understand the church, but I think one of the issues that we sometimes face is we often misunderstand the church or the nature of the church because some of the very language that we use, it sends the message ultimately that that the church is something that you go to. Um, and so you may have said to your spouse or a friend this morning saying, you know, we are going to church this morning. And, and really what you were referring to was coming to this worship gathering. Because the church has nothing to do about like when we meet, whether it's 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. or whatever, or where we meet in this place or anywhere else or online, whatever. But the reality is, is that together we are the church. The church is who we are and ultimately what we do. And the key to this, understanding the nature of the church, is to understand that um, we, when we are in Christ, okay, when we're in Christ, that is, that, that, that we've been called out from a former way of life, we've been called together, and, and then the fact is, is that we don't then ultimately live our Christian life on our own, or for our own purposes, but we live it out in the context of the church, or this new humanity that was created. And the church is a group of people who then individually work this out, but collectively as well, we look to Jesus, we seek him, and we follow him. And so with that as an introduction, let's talk about this this morning with these three phrases. Who we are, what we wear, and what we do. Okay? Who we are, what we wear, what we do. So who we are begins in verse 12. Paul writes, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, 
And Paul, right at the beginning here now, reverts back and reminds them of their identity, who they are in Christ. And he uses three Old Testament references to Israel here to describe, in fact, the people of God or the church. And so if you think again what this whole letter has been about, it's uh, uh, a group of people that did not know Jesus. There was one man from among them who had gone to Ephesus. This man's name was Epaphras. He heard the gospel preached by Paul there. He came back to, to, to the city of Colossae. He shared with these people the gospel. He's, Paul earlier says that they were once alienated from Christ. Now they've been reconciled in Christ. And so they are believers and followers of Jesus Christ. And he uses these words to just emphasize this. He says they're, they're chosen. They're chosen. They're God's chosen people. And they're called not because of their goodness, but simply because of God's grace. And this is what God does. He calls people to himself. He is the one that's always taken the initiative. You know, we may think we're somehow involved in the process of coming to faith in Jesus Christ, but I can tell you this, God chose you, and he called you to himself. And when you understood that, you then responded to that free gift of grace. But he is the one who took the initiative. He chose you. I don't know how that sits with you, but that should make you feel pretty good this morning. So it wasn't on yourself, it wasn't anything you did, but it was everything that God did. Secondly, he says, they're holy. We came across this in the very introduction to the letter, but holy just simply means that they're set apart for God himself, that they were singled out, in fact, to be loved by God. And so they're holy, they were set apart from sin, they were set apart from sin to God, they were set apart from sin for God. And so, yes, ultimately, we are different. As followers of Jesus Christ, right, we follow a king. We submit to his rule and his reign in our lives because we're holy. We're God's chosen, holy people. And then thirdly, he uses this word, loved. You're loved. Those are tender words. Some translations say, beloved. And when Paul's saying this, he's not, he's not just talking about, you know, the affection that God might feel for you and for me, but it's really that we're the focus and the object of God's love. And it reminds us again that we're loved not because of our performance. We're not loved because of what we do. But because we are loved, we then are motivated to live in faithfulness and obedience right? We love. Why? Because he first loved us. And so this sets up the question of motivation for us. When we approach life, do we do what we do in order to be loved more? Or, because I know that I'm loved, I do what I do. I respond to God's love. I mean, there's a lot of the things that might motivate us sometimes in life. We might be motivated by fear. We might be motivated by guilt. We might feel motivated by obligation. We say, well, I have to do this. And all of those are, in fact, quite poor motivations, right? They only can go so far. But Paul is saying 
that because of who we are, because you are chosen, because you are holy, because you are loved, that in fact is all the motivation that we need to clothe yourself. Clothe yourself because you are God's holy, loved, chosen people. So in other words, now you wear what you are. Because if that's who you are, there's a wardrobe that is fitting for the saints. So that takes me to my next section, what what we wear then. And really this just continues in verse 12 when he says, clothe yourselves. But what we wear is simply Jesus now being expressed through us. What we wear, in fact, is evidence that Christ is in us. That what we have within us, Jesus, is reflected on the outside, just like our clothing. And so Paul goes on to say we put on these these virtues, these virtues that stand in stark contrast to the vices that he had just earlier said about putting off these things and putting on these things. And here's what we're to put on, clothing of the saints, if you will. Number one, compassion. Compassion. Seems rather straightforward, right? But compassion is this unique combination of heart and mercy. It's feeling that results in action. And so that's why some translations would translate the word there, tender-hearted mercy. And mercy simply means that we live in another person's skin. We walk in their shoes. We feel what they feel to sense deep within our hearts what another person is going through. And God gives us this unique ability to to understand because of the mercy that he gives to us. The ancient world was merciless. The weak, those that were physically handicapped, they didn't survive. Elderly weren't cared for. Those suffering from mental illnesses were shown no concern. And so Christians putting on mercy, putting on compassion, in fact, made a dramatic statement. William Barclay in his commentary writes this, he says, Christianity brought mercy into this world. It is not too much to say that everything that has been done for the elderly, the sick, the weak in body and in mind, animals, children, and women has been done through the inspiration of Christianity. Because of the compassionate, tender heart of mercy of Christians, they stepped into places that everyone else would run from. And so simply put, followers of Jesus are compassionate people. We, we put on compassion. Secondly, we put on kindness. And I think here Paul's just using this to talk about how we now treat others. And, and kindness is while it's expressed in our actions, it's probably best expressed often through our words. Um, Because compassion, I think, results in the action. Kindness is just how we treat people and how we talk to people. And it doesn't often happen naturally. I read about an exchange between George Bernard Shaw and Sir Winston Churchill, and Shaw wrote a letter to Churchill and said, enclosed are two tickets to the opening night of my first play. Bring a friend if you have one. Churchill replied, Dear Mr. Shaw, unfortunately, I'll be unable to attend the opening night of your play due to a prior engagement. Please send me tickets for a second night, if you have one. 
Now, they're probably just having some good-natured fun, and I get that. But still, I think it's all too easy for us sometimes to be more harsh with our words than we need to be. Some of the things that we say can, in fact, be downright mean or nasty. And sometimes that meanness or that nastiness or that harshness is, is expressed through car- sarcasm, right? So we say something unkind and then we go, oh, I'm just kidding, as if somehow that will remove the sting from it. But it's through our words that we can put on kindness. And I think it's helpful to remember Proverbs 15.1. You remember that, don't you? You don't? A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger, right? Kindness can go a long way in our world, and as followers of Jesus Christ, we put on kindness. Thirdly, we put on humility, humility. This is really with respect to how we view ourselves, and it, it doesn't mean that we think poorly of ourselves. It's not beating ourselves up in beating ourselves down or any of that. But humility is simply is kind of that, the absence, in fact, of self-exaltation. We know the opposite of humility is pride or arrogance. But the Christian's clothing that includes this humility is simply when we consider others ahead of ourselves. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, you can just turn back probably a couple pages. And there's this great passage there where he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Okay? Rather, in humility, there it is, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and does this beautiful hymn of, of, of the humility of Jesus, who ultimately, uh, you know, was, 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 was obedient to the cross. Well, we put on compassion, we put on kindness, we put on humility. Fourthly, we put on gentleness. And some of your Bibles may be translated meekness. And meekness, as you know, should never be confused with weakness, because gentleness, in fact, is strength under control. Whenever I think of that, I, I think of some of these amazing horses that, 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 that you know, that pull the plows, um, and they're under control, but there's incredible strength there, incredible strength. And lastly, we put on patience, patience. Long-suffering, this is defined as in the face of insult or injury. But it's really more than just enduring difficulties or some passive resignation to our circumstances. It's an invitation throughout Scripture in the New Testament. Paul's writing in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse, verse 14, you know, to be patient with everyone. So everyone, everyone should be the recipients of our patience. Now, when you think of just these five articles of clothing, these five virtues, what, who, who does this remind you of? Yeah, it's a Sunday school answer, but it's okay. Jesus. Right? We look to Jesus, and what, what we, Jesus was compassionate. His heart wept at times. Jesus was kind. He was humble. He was gentle. He was patient. 
Have you ever discovered, though, that some clothes are easier to put on than others? I mean, at my age, I have trouble putting on socks sometimes. I mean, it's ridiculous. But, 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 but this struck me just, I have two jackets. One that is just kind of uh, nice and smooth on the inside. I can just slide it in and it sits nice. It doesn't, another one I have is kind of fleece lined. And it's always like, ah, like it's harder to get my arms through there. And then when you have it on, every movement you go, you know, your whole shirt, everything's kind of yanking back and forth. It's just not as, as comfortable. But I don't think there's anything as difficult as putting on like tights or pantyhose. Now, not that I'm speaking from personal experience or anything like that, but it just looks incredibly awkward and hard and difficult. And friends, the fact of the matter is that we don't just wake up one morning and decide, you know, I'm going to be a more compassionate person today. I'm going to be more kind. I'm going to be a little more humble today. We recognize that, in fact, in our own strength, it's impossible to put these on unless the Holy Spirit enables it and does it within us. And one thing that we, I think we need to know and, and note this morning is that when we clothe ourselves in this way, there's an impact on relationships. You see, I said earlier how the context that Paul is writing now is really in the context of the church. And, and, and in our experience of community, we, we need to be people who all wear these clothes well. In fact, these clothes can only be worn in community with others. It's in this context of relationships where we become more like Jesus when we are, in fact, around others who also desire to become more like Jesus. And there's one more point that I want to make here. The tense here is the present imperative, which simply means put these on and keep putting them on. Put them on and keep putting them on. This isn't a one-time thing. This is every day waking up and saying, God, make me more like Jesus. Help me to have a little more compassion today. Help me to be a little kinder in my words. Help me to be a little more humble today. Help me to be a little bit more gentle with the way that I interact with people. Help me to be patient. And Paul goes on to talk about what happens when, in fact, we wear these clothes. What's, What's the impact or the result of wearing them? How will we know that when we put these clothes on, what happens? Verse 13, this is really important. Because I think all five of these virtues are necessary to do the next two things. And the first, verse 13, let me just read it first. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone, right? So the first thing that we do as a result of wearing these clothes is that we bear with one another. Friends, I think that's so important for us. Another way of looking at it is we put up with one another. You know, all of us do things in relationship where we just kind of annoy each other, right? And and there's a part where I think we're when we're wearing the clothes that are fitting for a follower of Jesus, it in fact helps us to bear with one another. I mean, why is this important? Because none of us have arrived. We're not yet what we're going to be. We're all still a work in progress. And so we just have to cut each other a little slack. Bear with each other. 
Now, there are times where I think we can cross the line, and we do actually hurt or offend somebody, but there too, Paul has an answer. Forgive one another. Forgive one another. He says, you know, if anyone has a grievance against you or a complaint against one another, forgive one another. And he actually says, you know, there's a model of forgiveness. Let me remind you of this, guys. He says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. (laughs) That puts the standard right up there, right? You know, we have these mutual activities then, forbearing and forgiving. I bear with you and forgive you, and you do the same for me. I put up with you, and when you cross the line and really offend or hurt, then I forgive. And here's the thing. I think that that line between putting up and just kind of letting things go and then actually being offended, I think sometimes we move that too far along and we're too easily offended. And as a result, we're often too slow to forgive or we choose not to forgive at all. And if that's the case... Paul is reminding us that that's a ridiculous posture to take. Because remember Jesus' forgiveness. He forgave you. He forgave you of everything. So forgive as the Lord forgave you. And when we live in unforgiveness, when we live in bitterness and resentment, The other person isn't affected by that nearly as much as we are. And we hold on to these things that eat us up. One one writer put it this way, we retain the poison of hatred when we hold on to unforgiveness. I remember a situation in, a, in another ministry context, and it was really vague, but the, but the situation is so clear in my mind because I was trying to meet with these two people to deal with a hurt that had been caused, and one had really absolutely been wronged. And it was this beautiful thing where this other person came in and just said, you know, I am deeply sorry for hurting you. Please forgive me. And so I turned to the person who had been hurt. Just silence. They wouldn't forgive. I was like, hold on. Now we have another problem. Because you can't do that. If somebody comes and acknowledging their hurt and they ask for your forgiveness, we need to be people who forgive. Friends, it's almost like Paul gets through all of this and then he's like, oh, wait, wait, there's one more piece. There's one more piece. It's important. Verse 14, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And it's almost as if Paul is now picturing this person who has now put on all these articles of clothing and he's kind of weighed down and there are these long garments in that first century and, and, um, and, and, and they're layered and they're flowing and they get in the way when they're walking and he's like, oh, wait a minute, there's something missing here. Oh, that's right, a belt. A belt to hold it all together. And he says that belt is the love that binds them all together. And again, there's this ongoing, continuing aspect to this love. It's keep putting on love over and over and over again. And when we do that, he says it binds all of what God is doing in our lives together in perfect unity. It binds us together with one another in harmony. And friends, that's the beautiful thing about the Christian faith, isn't it? 
I mean, I don't know if you, if you notice it. It is hard in this context because you're looking at the back of someone's head or you're just looking at me and on the screen and you don't see other people. But if the church is a family, we recognize that, that we're a very diverse family, that we can all be very different. We all have our own distinctions. And it might even be race or culture or social status or financial status or whatever it is. But ultimately what Paul's getting at is all of that is irrelevant because Jesus changes everything. Sure, those things exist. You don't just stop and change your ethnicity or anything else like that. But what we recognize is that at the end of the day, we're one body in unity. We are a family. In fact, there was a verse that that Pastor Adam skipped last week, not intentionally, but just out of, I think, time and everything else, but it was verse 11. Let me just take that. He said there, here there is, okay, here, here in the church, he says, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but listen to this, but Christ is all and is in all. So all of these different statuses, different cultures, races, religions, everything else, And he says, listen, Christ is in all. That is where our unity is found. And so in the midst of the diversity that we might have as we look around, we go, you know what? There still is a unity. And it's marked by love. And friends, in a culture that is increasingly divided, and we know this all too well, That's why a church united that's marked by love is so unique and attractive. Because the world doesn't know anything about that. Well, we've been making much about being with God and with one another. And and the way we do this, I'm just going to highlight this because I think this kind of sums up an action that you can take, something practical, really is this practice of community. Because if you are part of the church, you need to be with other believers. Simply put. And that's what's been incredibly challenging with COVID. But you know what? You're resilient. You're creative. There are ways to get together, even if it's with one or two or three other believers, whatever it is. But we need to be people who intentionally gather together. And as a church, we provide opportunities like small groups or refresh for the ladies during the week or men's prayer on Tuesday mornings. Pastor Adam's going to start this new community group on a Thursday night that I mentioned earlier. But you need to put at the forefront of your thought... This year, in 2022, I am going to engage wholeheartedly in the practice of community. Because where else will I need to put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience? Where else will I need to put up with people who are different than me? And where else might I need to practice forgiveness apart from that experience of community. So that's who we are and what we wear, and lastly, what we do. You see, if this is then, in fact, who we are, right? We're, we're chosen, we're wholly loved, and this is what we wear, then finally, what do we do? Verse 15 following gives us these clues. Number one, let the peace of Christ rule. Let the peace of Christ rule. What does he mean? 
Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And what happens is this, at some point in our lives, right, we, you know, we're apart from God, we're alienated from God, we experience a deep conviction, we're introduced to Jesus, we recognize that he offers us the forgiveness of sins, he makes it possible for us to be right with God, and upon being made right with God, we know that then there's no longer any hostility between us and God, and so therefore we come to know the peace of Christ. did a message just before Christmas on the peace of Christ. And peace is not just a good feeling. It's not just the absence of conflict, but it's a deep sense of wholeness and well-being. And when we are complete in Christ, it just means that we are with Christ and we know His peace. And it's more than just peace. We, we know that there's then the presence of Christ as well. And Paul's, you know, Paul's saying here, so then, you know, let this peace rule in your hearts rule in your hearts. What does he mean? Another word there could be arbitrate. And, and, and it's a great word from which we might actually get like the concept of an umpire, okay? In sporting activities, somebody who makes judgments on our behalf, makes arbitration. In other words, we could say it this way, let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your heart amidst the conflicts of life. Let it decide what is right, let it be your counselor. And so you can just simply ask, you know, is there, is there peace? Is peace ruling? Is peace being that umpire? And when it's ruling in our lives, it, it starts to affect us in this way. You see, have you ever thought about how many messes could we avoid if we just let the peace of Christ rule? right? I said earlier about kindness, right? It's our tongue that is the number one thing that gets us in trouble in relationships, isn't it? We say something to our spouse, we say something to our kids, we maybe say something to a fellow employee, whatever, and we're just like, oh man, why did I say that? Right? Maybe we're not that quick to realize that, but here's the point. If we're letting the peace of Christ rule or arbitrate, the peace of Christ ultimately becomes that filter through which we think about what we're going to say. You know, this might be harsh or, you know, is this going to be hurtful to this person? You know what? I'm going to just bite my tongue. This is something I need to put up with. See, that's how we end up with peace in the body or in relationship. Because you have two people each of them letting the peace of Christ rule in their lives. Both have submitted to the lordship of Jesus. There's this mutual forbearing and putting up with one another. There's this mutual forgiving of one another. And here, ultimately, there's a mutual submission to the lordship of Christ. And so we come together under his rule and reign. We experience his peace. Secondly, we let the message of Christ dwell. Verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God. I mean, how does the message or the word dwell, right? Let the message of Christ dwell. So I say, okay, so what does that mean? We just learned about what the peace of Christ ruling means, but what does the message or the word dwell? How do we dwell in the word? Well, we read the word. We immerse ourselves in the word. 
And when we do that, we find that it often encourages us and comforts us. Other times it convicts us and challenges us. And so when we spend time reading and meditating on the Word of God under the direction of the Holy Spirit, we recognize that God ultimately then speaks through His Word. And when He speaks through His Word, there's this richness. Let the Word of Christ dwell richly. And and this richness manifests itself in teaching and admonishing. And there's this wisdom in the Word. And when the Word dwells in you, you have a response of singing. You see, when we come together like we do in this way, it's in all of our diversity, there's something incredible that happens when we let the peace of Christ rule and we let the message of Christ dwell. And we respond in singing praise together. And so I'm just going to say, like, in this context, letting the message dwell, it's really the practice, again, of Scripture reading. We say this over and over again, but we can't miss it. We spend time with God when we are in His Word. And guess what? There's an app for that. (laughs) I often talk about the the Dwell app. I love it. I know it's a paid-for thing, but I think it's, it's a good investment. But there's other things. You just find something that works for you because there's absolutely no substitute to spending time with God in His Word. And lastly, we let the name of Christ be praised. Verse 17, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I think Paul's saying here again, just capture that. This is incredibly comprehensive because he says whatever, not whatever, but whatever you do, everything that you do, it covers it all. He says deeds, think about it, everything that you do. This is your waking, your sleeping, your eating, your biking, your You know, whatever your activity is, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let your life and the activities of your life be praised to Him. And words, deeds and words, the words that pass from our lips. And so again, everything we do or say should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we live lives that honor Him. We just honor Him. Everything we do. And the practice here that I want to encourage you to think about is just the practice of worship and celebration. And sure, there's the the gathering in this context uh, to worship and sing together. But what would happen if you woke up tomorrow morning and the first song you heard or the song that was in your spirit was, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. And I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me. Amazing love. How can it be? Friends, did you notice, and because I didn't say it, and if you didn't have your finger in the Bible and not reading this text, maybe you didn't notice, but there's a theme running through this last section. When we think about what we do, let the peace of Christ rule and let the message of Christ dwell and let the name of Christ be praised. All three of those are to be infused with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. So we're people who overflow with thanksgiving. Verse 15, after saying, let the peace of Christ rule and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell 
and singing psalms, hymns, spiritual song with gratitude in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father. Friends, thanksgiving is our ultimate response to all that God has done for us and in us. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, we should be prayerful, joyful, full of thanksgiving. And just know that thanksgiving just changes everything. Changes everything. Stop and think about that for a while. Let's pray. Father, this is such a great passage. And I pray, Father, that this would be an encouraging word to us. Perhaps a challenging word. Makes us sit up and take notice. We evaluate our own lives and we recognize that we're not always people who put on compassion or kindness or humility or gentleness or patience. We recognize that we are people sometimes who are quickly and easily offended when maybe it was more appropriately for us to put up with something. We also know, though, that there are times where we have been hurt and offended and we wrestle with what to do with it. Father, in those situations, I pray that you give us the ability to speak the truth in love and to, to be able to go to a brother or a sister, a spouse, a family member, and say, when you did that, that hurt me. And that we would be people who, because we're clothed with humility, recognize that, oh man, please forgive me. Lord, when we live this out in this beautiful thing that you've created, the church, and we specifically live this out in the context of Twilliger Community Church, I pray, Father, that you would help us be a people that really do let the peace of Christ rule in our lives, who are people who let the message of Christ dwell in our hearts and minds, and that we would be a a people We'll let the name of Christ be praised to your honor and to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.